Hi everyone, how are you doing? Welcome to the second part of our interview with David Shisher. David is an American clinical social worker practicing individual and couples therapy in Geneva. In the first part, we discussed four methods that he uses to help his clients dealing with an addiction and the impact of social media on children and how to prevent it. You can listen to it on our YouTube channel currently wearing presents iTunes or SoundCloud. In the second part that you will hear today, we will discuss how to build a sound and long-term committed relationship, 36 questions that can bring couples closer emotionally, and stages of an intimate relationship, and in fact, much, much more. So here is the second part of our interview with David Shisher. One of my friends said that every couple goes through the loss of intimacy. Is that true? Doesn't it depend on the basis of the relationship? For example, if you build your relationship on physical intimacy, beauty or material possessions, you can expect that it will change sooner or later. Shouldn't we prioritize common goals, understanding and communication? Well, the short answer is yes. We should prioritize common goals, understanding, and communication. It's a complicated question that you ask, and and I'd like to talk about it in terms of the basis of healthy relationships based on the work of John and Julie Gottman uh, out of Seattle. And I'd also like to talk about it in terms of the stages of, rela- of committed relationships. And I think I'll talk about the stages first, because within the stages, there's typically a loss of intimacy, either or physical and or emotional intimacy, and that would be quite common at certain stages throughout relationships. For example, the stages committed relationships, just to summarize them, the first one is romantic love, which is the, you know, just a wonderful, easy, effortless, where everything is spontaneous and alive and where the couple feel like they are just one being as two and they are the same and they are perfect and they can give and receive love with little or no effort. Uh, They typically maximize their similarities. They minimize their differences. They expect that each of them will provide most or all of each other's wants, needs, and desires. There's a high degree of passion and feelings and expressions of romance come very easily and very often. Uh, Partners are thinking about each other almost constantly or obsessively. There's a lot of eye contact. There's a lot of touching, a lot of affection. It's It's a stage of near constant bliss and infatuation. And there's this belief that these feelings and experiences will go on forever. However, this is the shortest stage of the of committed relationships and generally lasts from about six months to two years. By the way, this information is, is based on research that's been done on relationships. And the second stage is then adjusting to the reality of their couple. This comes up when Maybe the first minor or major conflict in the new relationship occurs. Uh, Sometimes the trigger for this conflict is uh, living together or sharing household chores, you know, the the day-to-day experiencing of each other's personal habits up close, 
sometimes it's an act of deception which is discovered. Uh, sometimes it's a, a large project that the couple embarks on together, such as planning a wedding, buying a house, or sharing finances. Whatever the cause, after the conflict occurs, it becomes almost impossible to continue the fantasy that this person or this relationship are immune from either the struggle, the effort, or from reality. So differences which were previously obscured in the romantic love stage of the relationship suddenly become visible. At this stage, it's common to feel as if someone or something or even life itself has cheated you or robbed you of something precious, almost like a stage of grieving. So in short, adjusting to reality is the stage where the real relationship begins. So the third stage is called the power struggle. And as the disillusionment of the adjusting to reality stage deepens, the couple tends to have more disagreements. Minor issues blow up into larger arguments. Perhaps yelling appears for the first time. Both partners dig in their heels and defend their positions on issues quite fiercely. This is, and this is a typical stage in the development of long-term committed relationships. The task for the couple here are to develop problem-solving skills, uh, learn to resolve conflicts, and hone their negotiation skills. The conflicts won't go away on their own. Each person must, must learn to listen respectfully to their partner's position, even if they don't agree with it. They must learn to support each other's growth, even if it feels it compromises their own to some extent. This, the fourth stage is the reevaluation stage. So the power struggle is physically and emotionally draining, and if the couple can survive, they move into this next stage of a conscious reevaluation of the relationship. Whereas the original commitment one makes is, is based on projection of fantasy, this reevaluation takes into account the reality and fears and defenses of each person. Both people tend to turn outward to resolve their issues instead of uh, toward each other. As a result, fears of abandonment come up really strongly here. Can I make it by myself? Am I really okay the way I am? Will anybody else find me attractive or appealing? But both people, emotionally and sometimes physically, disengage and withdraw during this stage which makes it the stage in which separation, divorce, or an affair are most likely to occur. It's very likely that the, the sexual relationship is sporadic at best, and more likely non-existent. Things are ripe for an affair to burst on the scene, and often a person in this stage will begin to confide in someone of the opposite sex outside of the relationship. So the task for each person in this stage is to stay present, to honor their commitment to each other, to develop individually, and to be able to see their partner as a separate person. This is the only way the relationship can survive and move into the next stage, which is the reconciliation stage. So if the relationship has survived, there's a reawakening of interest in getting closer and connecting again. There's willingness to try once again. There's an open acceptance of the conflicts and differences in the relationship. 
and they are used as opportunities for learning about oneself and the other person. They're catalysts for growth and change. There's a recognition that neither person can really change the other, that it's up to each person to change themselves. In this stage, there's a deeper sense of taking responsibility for one's part in conflict and in lack of satisfaction. Each person recognizes the link between uh, what they learned as children in their families of origin and, and how they approach intimate relationships as an adult. They own their distortions and projections onto their partners. They begin to see their, their partners as they see themselves, as somewhat flawed yet decent person who's making a sincere effort to love. So in this stage, the war is over, the conflicts are accepted, and there is a sincere desire to learn how to work through the issues to a satisfying resolution. The last stage, called acceptance, is only reached by about 5% of couples. It's a stage of complete acceptance. There's an integration of the need of, of the self and the needs of the relationship. Each person takes responsibility for their own needs and for their own individual lives. Each person provides support for each other. There's warmth. There's balance between autonomy and union. Conflicts still arise on occasion, but as a result of the struggles of the previous stage, a couple has figured out how to resolve most conflicts relatively quickly. There are few surprises. Couples accept what they are getting with no denial or fantasy involved. They work together as a team to stay connected and also maintain their own identities. 5%, it's, uh, it's very low, actually. It's a bit depressive if you talk about it. Yeah, and a couple couples who reach the acceptance stage, even though they are very few, are very lucky. And couples can coexist quite well together in the reconciliation stage where power struggle is over, they accept each other, they accept their flaws, they accept each other's faults. Maybe they're working on themselves or not. But the couples who are stuck in kind of a loveless relationship. I know for myself, I would not be happy with that, and I would want to do something about it. So that's the point at which I would have a chat with my partner saying, what's going on here? And how about if we go and talk to somebody and see if we can uh, bring back some of the love or some of the caring and some of the commitment and oftentimes, when they talk to a couples therapist, there are some very simple actions and words and things that they can share together that can bring back a sense of the togetherness and a sense of caring for each other. Even if you can't go back to the romantic stage and the honeymoon period, you can still exist in, in quite a satisfactory state of living together and being partners and cooperating and really having a deep and lasting care and affection for each other. And I think a lot of couples would be be quite happy with that. So it's really important, I think, to for couples to to not set their goals so low that they give up in achieving a loving 
relationship with each other. And what would you recommend after having a child? For example, you have your first child and it, of course, changes the relationship. We were talking about the book uh, and, and the Child Makes Free. It's the name? Okay, I will have a look at it. Yeah, the name of the book in, is uh, And Then There Were Three uh, by John and Julie Gottman. And I recommend that for couples who are expecting their first child uh, to read this book in the few months before they have their first child because... Of course, and it's uh, very common in the couples who come to see me that uh, when I ask them when did the conflicts or when did the issues uh, start to arise in a relationship, very high percentage of them say after our first child was born. Because so many changes and so many adjustments happen after the first child is born, the biggest one being that the child is dependent and the child needs a lot of attention and focus from both parents. And so the attention automatically goes to the child and then away from each other. And that's a difficult adjustment to make. And couples need to put into place some routines and some rituals where, for example, they have time together uh, after the, the baby falls asleep in the evening that they spend time with each other, not just recovering from how tired they are from their days, but reconnecting with each other, whether it's a conversation or whether it's having a babysitter and going out on a date night on a regular basis. I recommend once a week um, setting a time, a day, and having that time to reconnect with each other, having that time to ask each other how, how they're doing as a new mom, as a new dad, and being there to listen to uh, the exhaustion and the frustrations and the adjustments that come to being from being a new parent. It's a, it's a huge adjustment, and it lasts for, it could last for the whole first year, if not longer, after the baby is born. It's a difficult time for, for families and for parents, and there are things that couples can do to to stay strong and to focus on each other at the same time they're taking good care of their baby so the other part of your question about relationships and the loss of intimacy was does it depend on the basis of the relationship in addition to the being couples being aware of the stages that their relationship may go through it's good to be aware of some of the foundations of healthy relationships. And the information I'm going to talk about now comes from John and Julie Gottman, who are couples researchers in Seattle, Washington. And I'm just going to summarize some of the basis of what they talk about. And they call it the sound relationship house. And I think there's going to be a, an image of this posted while I talk about this. The bottom level of the sound relationship house constitutes friendship, uh, which is the foundation of a strong relationship. And they call this building your love maps with each other. And this means having conversations with each other and getting to know your partner's inner psychological world or his or her worries, stresses, joys, dreams. It involves asking each other open-ended questions and maintaining an awareness of each other's world knowing each other's best friends, knowing what happened at work that day. If you're having trouble knowing what questions to ask, 
there's a, an app called the 36 Questions, which is very helpful in giving couples 36 questions to help build emotional closeness. And you can simply, to find that, simply Google 36 questions and you'll find the New York Times app related to that. And there's three sets of 12 questions. And as you get to the end of those 36 questions, you will feel that you are emotionally closer to each other. So that's the, the foundation of building love maps. Uh, the second level of this relationship house is fondness and admiration, which is the antidote for contempt. It involves changing a habit of mind from scanning the environment for your partner's mistakes and then correcting them to scanning the environment for what your partner is doing right and building a culture of appreciation, fondness, affection, respect. It means saying please and thank you. It means complimenting them on how they look or the, the food that has been prepared or perhaps the, the hard work that they do as they come home from a, a day at the office or being home all day with children. So sharing fondness and admiration. The third level is a turning towards each other instead of turning away. So this happens in everyday small moments. And these are the actual building blocks of a relationship. So each partner has the opportunity to either turn towards each other, to turn away, or to turn against what we call is a, an emotional bid from his or her partner. So a bid is a gesture. It could be verbal or nonverbal. It's some sort of positive connection, uh, a conversation, some humor, uh, some affection, a touch, uh, a romantic glance, or some kind of support. It's very small everyday moments in relationships. Are, these are opportunities for turning towards each other. Uh, accept emotional bids for connection means when somebody gives you a smile or a nice comment, you respond to that. You notice it, you say thank you, you maybe return the compliment, maybe there's a hug that occurs, but you have to really make sure that you, you don't ignore that emotional bid for connection and that you don't turn away from it, but you turn toward it. So these first three levels determine whether this level is positive or negative. So the, the next point is maintaining a positive perspective. A positive perspective occurs when the friendship is strong. So this level represents what it feels like in the relationship, including the presence of positive affect in problem-solving discussions, the success of repair attempts during conflict resolutions. Uh, the first three levels of this sound relationship house are not, uh, if they're not working, then couples tend to be in this negative perspective and are hyper-vigilant for, for negativity. People are in the negative perspective for a good reason. They see their partner as an adversary, not as a friend. So to change that state, you need to build the friendship in the relationship using the first three levels of the sound relationship house. So 
another really important aspect that couples often don't know how to do very well is to manage conflict. And we talk about managing conflict rather than resolving conflict because relationship conflict is natural and it has functional and positive aspects. For example, it helps us learn how to better love and to understand each other, to deal with change, to renew courtship over time. We try to manage but not to eliminate conflict. So there are two types of conflict. The first one we call uh, perpetual problems. So most of the problems that partners uh, learn to live with are perpetual problems. And instead of trying to solve them, couples learn how to dialogue, communicate, about the different, their different subjective realities. So the masters of relationships seem to be able to come to some acceptance of their problems. They're able to simultaneously communicate acceptance of their partner and the desire to improve the problem, often with some amusement, some respect, and affection, always with a lot of affection. However, if they can't establish a dialogue, their conflict becomes gridlocked, which eventually leads to emotional disengagement. So it's important to keep the conversation open, even about problems that, that cannot be solved. And then the second type of conflicts are the solvable problems. So there are six skills to help couples manage these conflicts. Uh, the first one is practicing self-soothing. So when you feel upset, go away from the situation for a moment and do something that's soothing for yourself, physiologically self-soothing. Take a hot shower, uh, go for a walk, get a massage, you know, something like that to help yourself calm down. The second one, second skill is a softened startup. When you have something to complain about, it's important to start that conversation up very softly uh, give somebody a compliment first, um, turn the, the complaint into a request instead of a, instead of a, you do this, you always do that, I hate it when, blah, blah, blah. So use a softened startup and turn the complaint into a request. The third skill is making repairs to, for example, a conversation that got out of hand. Uh, go away, think about it, realize the things you, that you said that were perhaps harmful, come back and apologize and, and, and repair the, that aspect of uh, the conversation that you regret or you'd like to restate in a different way. The fourth skill is to de-escalate a situation that's emotionally out of hand. De-escalating means being really conscious of your, well, in very concrete terms, your heart rate. When heart rate is above 95 to 100 heartbeats per minute, that means you're going into the fight-or-flight mode. And when you're in this mode, it's very difficult to have a conversation that goes anywhere and problem-solves effectively. So know what it feels like when you get to that fight-or-flight mode and call a timeout and go away and 
go for a walk, calm down, do use the self-soothing, and plan for a time to come back and, and continue the conversation when both people are calm. So the next skill is listening to your partner's underlying feelings and dreams. A lot of times we don't talk about these underlying feelings and dreams, so we need to ask about them and listen to them when they are willing to talk about them. The next skill is accepting influence from each other. This has shown to be particularly effective when the husband or the, the male partner is accepting influence from his wife or female partner. But it's important for each to be able to accept influence from the other. And the last skill, of course, is compromise. And the important point with compromise is that it needs to be quite balanced. Uh, one person can't be the only one compromising most of the time. There has to be a meeting in the middle. Couples who are able to, to compromise have quite strong relationships. So the last levels of the Sound Relationship House are to make life dreams come true. So this is about finding ways to support each other's life goals and dreams. Crucial aspect of any relationship is creating an atmosphere that encourages each person to talk honestly about his or her dreams, values, convictions, aspirations, etc. And another important aspect is creating shared meaning. This is in the attic of the sound relationship house. This is what you tell yourself about your relationship, your internal thoughts, your metaphors, your myths and stories. Everyone is a bit of a philosopher trying to make sense out of our brief journey through life. And this level is about creating shared meaning in the relationship. So you can create shared meaning with your partner by talking about for example, your, your rituals of connection, whether they be formal or informal, your shared goals, talking about how you can support each other's life roles. You can uh, also agree about basic symbols, such as what a home means. I believe that in every committed relationship, that every committed relationship is a cross-cultural experience because uh, we blend together each partner's legacy, each other's culture, values, beliefs, and together we create an entirely new culture. And the, the two pillars on each side of the Sound Relationship House are trust and commitment. Uh, so trust is a state that occurs when you believe your partner has your best interests in mind and acts in ways that benefit you. It's knowing uh, that your partner values your interest, your needs, as much as their own. In other words, it means that your, uh, your partner had your back and is there for you. And commitment means believing and acting on the belief that this relationship is a lifelong journey, for better or for worse, like in the, in the marriage vows, meaning that if it gets worse, you will both work to improve it. You act to maximize your partner's well-being. You avoid negative comparisons. You generate frequent thoughts and acts that cherish your partner's positive qualities and minimize your focus on their negative faults. So that's a, an outline of uh, Gottman's sound relationship house. And I, I use these 
these aspects and these principles in the in the work that I do with couples. And I find it to be quite helpful, and I, the couples find it to be quite helpful in renewing and bringing new life uh, to their relationship. Yeah, I would love to see relationship courses, formal relationship courses, start as early as maybe eighth, eighth grade middle school, particularly high school at the latest. I think teachers do a great job of helping students understand the aspects of relationship. Not so much the aspects of couples' relationships. Of course, those can be talked about in middle school, high school. But I think t- teachers, most of them do a really good job of helping students solve conflicts between the two of them and deal with bullying issues in the in the earlier years. So relationship work, I think, is being done in the schools from the very beginning. But I would like more of a create conscious focus on how to be a good friend, how to be a good partner when we start dating each other, how to, how to date, how to be respectful in dating situations and getting to know each other. I think a lot more uh, can be done at the middle school and high school levels to teach students how to be in a couple. I believe that we bring certain uh, habits from our own family to our new relationships. So, for example... I'm just giving an example. If if your father was an alcoholic and he was always beating your mother, then in your new relationship, because you've never seen anything else, you may either behave as a victim or as a perpetrator. While if you go to a school where someone explains to you that actually this is not really correct, this is not normal, no, I don't want to say normal, but this is not how you should treat each other, you may understand where you come from and you can, you may see it differently and you may not have to perpetuate it in your new relationship as a couple. Yeah, that's a really important point. In fact, uh, when I first start working with a couple, I speak to each of them individually and we investigate what I call their relationship programming, which they acquired, as you indicated, from their parents or from the first relationship that they were exposed to as they were growing up. And this happens, well, personalities developed in the first four years of life. I suspect that the relationship programming is developed in the years, these years as well. If we are conscious of what our relationship programming is, then we can make decisions about who we choose as a partner. When we're not conscious of our relationship program, it becomes automatic, it becomes our default. And then we tend to look for people who who remind us of one parent or another, or perhaps even the opposite of one parent or another. There's a type of relationship or couples therapy called imago. And imago states that people look for or partner up with others who can help them to heal their childhood wounds. So, in a sense, even if we find somebody who's critical, like our parent was critical, that critical partner as an adult can bring up some issues of having a critical parent that can help us heal those issues of having a critical parent. So even though we wouldn't want to have a critical partner, if we realize this is related to our relationship programming and this is part of the way that we heal our childhood wounds, then we may stick with that partner and work on those 
issues of, of having a critical partner in our lives and come to some healing and resolution of some early childhood wounds. But you still have to be conscious of that. Yeah, the consciousness is, is absolutely essential. So thinking about, if you're not working with a therapist, thinking about uh, what your parents' relationship was like. How, how did they speak to each other? How did they touch each other? How did they express affection? How did they resolve conflict? You know, think about all these things. And then think about the way that you do those things in your current relationship. And that can help you be more conscious of, of uh, how you choose to be in relationship going forward. David, thank you very much. It was really an interesting interview. Is there something that you would like to say at the end? Uh, just to thank you, Miriam, for taking your time to do these interviews. I think it's uh, important. And I respect the, the work that you're doing and really admire you for that. Thank you. If you like this interview, subscribe to our channel so that we can inspire even more people together Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.